Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. Where are markets headed next? Are we looking at a, a sell-off? Is that about to hit the market? We're going to find out with Arun Pai. He is Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. We've got a lot to get through. But first up, good morning, Arun. How are you? I'm very good, Michelle. Thank you for having me once again. So a story caught my eye, and the headline just seems to scream at investors, particularly with many markets trading at record highs, right? So there was a report saying there's a wave of selling estimated to be in the billions that is about to hit the stock market. It seems that many investors are taking short positions, particularly in something called E-minis. I wonder if you can help us understand what they are and how they work. Sure thing. So E-minis are basically uh, electronically traded uh, future contracts or options. These typically trade on uh, the CME, which is this exchange in the US. And the reason why the word mini is there is because it is uh, one-fifth the size of a traditional uh, S&P contract. So S&P 500 is the you know world's most recognizable stock exchange of 500 of the largest market capitalization companies in the U.S. Uh, a lot of investors, uh, rather than in obviously buying each and every individual stock, uh, takes upon too much like bid ask spread. Mm. So what investors can easily do is buy the index as a whole through ETFs or whatever. E-minis are this thing where rather than having uh, that much amount of money to purchase a future, they can do it of one-fifth the size. So a contract, so one contract of an E-mini is nothing but $50 times the S&P index number, which as of yesterday was something like around 3000 plus. So $50 times 3000 is one contract of an E-mini, which is a much smaller amount or is basically one-fifth. Uh, the amount of the capital required for a larger investor to be able to play in the future space in the S&P index. The reason why it's gotten a lot more shame, not just right now, but Mm. actually even back in 2009, Mm. when there are relatively volatile market moves, you tend to start seeing, uh, you know, uh, retail investors start getting involved, thinking that there's a potential or an easy way to make a quick buck. And the volume of E-mini actually overtook that of the regular uh, S&P 500 uh, future contract back in 2009. Mm-hmm. And now it's only been like a one way up. So that's, that's how the contract works, where uh, since it's the future, there's a certain amount of quantity. There's a certain price that is basically traded live on the exchange, just like any other stock price. Mm-hmm. And investors can go either long or short that future up to a certain date. The advantage, obviously, is uh, through these futures, uh, people can take leverage. And, you know, while leverage works beautifully well when you're making money, it can sadly lead to a lot of uh, bad things that happen to your portfolios in terms of negative returns or even getting wiped out for that matter when you don't understand the product and you start taking leverage trying to make a quick buck. Okay, so on the face of it, this buildup of short positions would seem to indicate that a sell-off is nearing. Is this necessarily the case? Not necessarily. So uh, one advantage of futures and options, if it is uh, utilized in the proper manner or the reason uh, that it was actually created for, is to hedge your position. 
What I mean by hedging your position, say, for example, a typical investor tends to have a very long-only position in the market. By long-only, I mean, you know, XYZ investor would have purchased a whole bunch of stocks, be it Apple, Google, Facebook, the larger names, or even smaller cap names, etc., and they are sitting on uh, long positions in equity. What you can do as a savvy investor, potentially, is if you think the markets as a whole have run up quite substantially, which, you know, just looking at the index numbers, they obviously have in the past one month because of a whole host of reasons uh, that we've been discussing on the show in the past couple of weeks. What investors can do is, in addition to the fact that you have bought all of these stocks, you can actually go into using e-mini contracts or, you know, the larger contracts or whatever, you can decide to sell short the equity index to a certain date in the future. So right now it's 25th uh, June. You can decide, okay, you know what? I think I'm getting a little bit scared of my position over here. I don't want to actually sell out the stocks and keep it in cash, but I want to ensure that if the markets as a whole do correct by 10, 20%, I can try and take advantage of that by selling short the S&P 500 index up to the point of August. And you can execute that in a relatively cost-effective manner through e-mini. So, you know, it's highly possible that a lot of uh, potentially retail investors, if they're familiar with the product, Mm -hmm. or sophisticated investors, more often than not, use uh, futures as well as options to kind of like hedge their uh, portfolio volatility, especially after the returns have like run up a fair amount uh, in the near past. Okay, really comprehensive. Thank you so much for explaining that to us. I want to move to corporate news now. Uh, Wirecard, we've been discussing this on the show, saw how some $2 billion US dollars on funds in its books may actually have never existed. Of course, the follow-up was the former CEO of the payments processing company has been arrested. Um, what's the latest and what do you think investors can take from this? You know, it's actually quite scary, to be honest, because... Uh, as you know, consumers of products, uh, us going to F&B restaurants and stuff in Singapore, when you pay for the bill using your credit card and you, you have to sign the bill off, uh, you can clearly see uh, in a lot of establishments, you will see like the Wirecard logo and the name of the company mentioned at the bottom. Right. These guys are not like, you know, sure, they might be fintech and stuff and that's what they originally started out from like 10 years ago or 10 years plus ago. Uh, this is a company that had grown to the size of having 250,000 companies that they were working with as a payment processor. So from the aspect of an investor, like it's easy to say in retrospect, oh, you know, Wirecard stock ran up a lot and now it crashed. There was only fraud allegations, et cetera. But uh, it's, it's something to be extremely careful about from an investor perspective because you are seeing this logo on a day-to-day basis. Uh, so it's not like it's just a one-off, uh, one-hit wonder where they've just got like a couple of companies uh, under their roster. Mm. Uh, in terms of the results, uh, was it the, was it a pricey stock? Yes, it was. But in terms of the numbers of growth, uh, it was tremendous. Uh, $2 billion is obviously a massive amount of money. And it just probably goes to show that, and this was primarily done through a uh, Middle East uh entity which was based out of Dubai and this is something that the Financial Times if any investor any listener of your show is actually you know curious about uh, Wirecard because you know we can talk about hours about this 
Really? Uh, but, <laughs> honestly, it is a great saga. Like the Financial Times, the FT has done such a phenomenal job starting out in 2019 of going into, you know, going undercover, figuring out exactly where all this, uh, where all like this, this Dubai entity, the fact that it didn't exist or it barely existed, it was a shell company. Mm. How was this entity being able to generate so much money, etc.? Like the story is endless. Uh, but overall, and you know, I just have to say, you've got to throw in the vision fund into this. Obviously, they invested a billion dollars to a convertible bond uh, not so long ago. And now obviously, they probably lost over 800 million or something close to that uh, already. But from the perspective, again, of a retail investor mm-hmm. uh, looking at this company, I think it was it's a lesson learned where diversity is definitely important unless you genuinely know every single thing that is happening within the business, which is obviously impossible. Mm. Uh, this is a company that had a great brand name being used exten- extensively everywhere. It had the great fintech story on the back of it. You know, was the founder potentially guilty of taking a little bit of that growth? Again, not all of it, but a little bit of that growth just to try and appease investors. Seems like the case because, you know, even the Philippines banks claim that they have no idea. They were not even uh, bank partners of Wirecard. Where's the $2 billion? Why do you think the $2 billion came through our system, etc.? It's extremely difficult. So, you know, diversification is definitely your friend, uh, especially during volatile times like this. All right. Great. Great to, to hear, you know. And good to know we have a topic that we can go to infinity with. <laughs> in a future show, maybe. All right, so let's move on to other corporate news. Twitter has hidden a tweet from President Donald Trump because it says that tweet violates Twitter's policy regarding threats of harm. So a spokesman for Trump's re-election campaign said Twitter has been biased for flagging. This is not the first time that Twitter has flagged a tweet, of course. Do you think there could be backlash for the company? What can investors take from this? So there are a number of ramifications, I feel, uh, in, in the tech space, not just Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, to, you know, they hit a post of, uh, or they flagged the post of uh, Trump's presidential campaign a uh, couple of days back also, because it had an image uh, that invoked a lot of like, you know, Nazi era uh, stuff. And this is quite scary from a company perspective for a couple of reasons, because firstly, uh, most of these tech companies are based out of California and the employees that work in these companies are, you know, part of the company, not just for the money aspect, but for the fact that they actually want to make a change in the world, right? Like this is one big selling point of Silicon Valley. Hmm. So you're seeing a number of uh, employees of these companies getting extremely disgruntled by uh towards senior management or the founder of the company in this case, wherein uh, how are we facilitating or enabling these kinds of activities which are, uh, you know, extremely hurtful to society as a whole? Like, why are we enabling uh, hate speech to take place? Uh, And this could be hate speech, be it from... Uh, some religious leader in a uh, developing country mm. or be it the most powerful man in the world uh, who, and the leader of the free world. Mm. So we, we see a lot of like walk, walkouts happening at Google, uh, at uh, Facebook, at Twitter, uh, even Amazon for that matter. Like why are you enabling AWS to 
you know, sell its software to uh, police, the, the police department in the U.S., where they can, like, uh, identify your face and then potentially, uh, you know, know exactly know every single uh, little bit of information about you. And the whole Big Brother story. So I think we've definitely not seen the end of this. Uh, if anything, as we go closer towards the presidential elections in the U.S., there'll be a lot of complications which involve free speech. Where do you draw the line about that? Should social media be allowed? Uh, should social media get in the way over here? Uh, should, they be, should they be stopping uh, these kinds of potentially harmful content? You know, the whole when the looting starts, the shooting starts, it, it, it's causing a massive uproar. And these are the complications that companies uh, who have now suddenly grown to having 1 billion, 2 billion users, they can literally shape the minds of people who are uh, users of the platform. And that's a lot of power that, if it goes unchecked, can lead to a lot of complications further down the line. And from an investor's perspective, that's something to be quite afraid of, because if regulation comes in, uh, the way which it easily can, right? Especially if Trump gets reelected and he sees that his lovely platforms of uh, him tweeting are not getting the desired results, mm. uh, he can suddenly get quite vengeful. And if that happens, then you suddenly start regulating this completely unregulated industry uh, until date. It really depends on how much the uh, running costs of the company goes up. Look at banks, right? Back in the day, when they were unregulated, your return of equities could be north of 20%. And now with the number of regulations that came along post the financial crisis especially, uh, it led to uh, you know banks unable be, to being traded at multiples of book value. So is that going to happen? Is that going to clamp down on growth? I think one hedge fund manager, I sadly forgot the name of the person, uh, when asked about Facebook a while ago, hmm. he says, you know, when you see Facebook and you think uh, 2 billion people, uh, that's 2 billion uh, avenues of potentially increasing revenue, I see that as 2 billion people of 2 billion data points of potential losses, where wow. people are uncomfortable sharing their personal data, uh, how are you using that data? And Google's been dealing through this for a number of years now. We're going to start seeing a lot of other social media companies start going through that too. So the, it's definitely uncertain times for the industry as a whole, I would say. That's really an interesting perspective. So you think that the uncertainty around preventing false or confusing information um, and employee revolts could really tear the company companies these companies apart? They will definitely... I think gone are the maybe I can if I can rephrase. I think gone are the days of, you know, what I have fifty million users on my platform. Let me try and get this to two hundred million users. And you know, obviously Facebook did that probably in the span of a month or something. And so did Twitter. So did Instagram. TikTok just recently crossed like two billion users. Mm. I think people will slowly start, uh, or the judicial system and the governments will slowly start realizing. How truly how much power these kind of systems have. Like, look at WhatsApp, right? End-to-end -end encryption messages. Um, one false rumor starts in one random village in, say, India, and it starts spreading to millions of people across the country. And, you know, like, is that real? Is that fake? Who's, who's the right person to judge? Before, when you have, like, say, two or three uh, media companies 
that were relatively more controlled, I would say. Not to say that that's the right business model or, uh, you know, not to get into the whole philosophical aspect of it, but sticking to, you know, social media and investors, uh, it's you, you now come to a point where certain messages that you put up will immediately, that, that information will immediately be disseminated to a billion people. Before, that used to be, you know, people like you, Michelle, people on BBC, people uh, who were potentially more qualified and who have the experience of providing uh, an educated uh, view of what is happening in the world, not necessarily an opinion. But now, you know, I can suddenly tweet out something providing my opinion. And uh, if I'm Trump or if I'm Elon Musk or if I'm uh, Mark Zuckerberg, that information can suddenly cause a lot of ramifications quite quickly. And it will really be up to the government to try and figure out. And you need to get governments involved over here, right? There's no way to just let pure profit-making companies uh, continue what they're doing uh, completely un unregulated. So I think, and, th and that will cause uh, a massive cost increase, which we've already seen in terms of the number of compliance departments, uh, the headcount in these social media companies. And now you're dealing with this additional issue of whether employees themselves are that happy of working uh, at these places. You know, like Google's whole thesis was do no evil. But a lot of people are now questioning that, right? Like is profit uh, overtaking this Silicon Valley good or not? That's really interesting because I was speaking, uh, you know, with the, with the head of a, of a fund that, of course, aims for stable risk-adjusted returns. And they were telling me that they see opportunities, of course, in the tech space, particularly with social media companies. And when I asked, you know, what are the criteria for screening these companies? They obviously look right now at base, right, the numbers that you were just talking about. But yep. as you say, there's so much more ahead that could be brewing. So really interesting perspective there. I want to turn now to Singapore stock. So Morgan Stanley in a report said Singapore equity valuations have bottomed and a sustained recovery or rebound is now underway as the market shifts from an imminent uh, to it shifts its focus, excuse me, to an imminent V-shaped recovery in the global economy. So we've seen a swift resumption in production and consumer activity as Singapore moves to phase two of the, the lockdown. What do you think... Uh, what do you think of this overview? Um, I mean, literally, I can look outside my house right now and we can clearly see, uh, you know, a lot more cars. It seems like business is going back and back to usual. Uh, I was out yesterday for dinner. A lot more people are out there. So, yes, is, is hopefully the economy recovering in a good way, at least from the consumer perspective, at malls, at restaurants, etc.? Yes, most definitely. Are the valuations of the Singapore market uh, one of the more attractive ones that at least I can see uh, across the more developed markets? Uh, checkbox to that again. But in terms of uh, a number of companies where growth can clearly be envisioned, uh, I think that's where Singapore might be lacking a little bit more as compared to uh, even the Hong Kong uh, exchange or the U.S. for that matter. So I think there are a couple of interesting companies uh, that will obviously be there in the index in general. But I think just purely taking a look at the domestic market of Singapore and trying to see, you know, because the market is opening up or the economy is opening up in Singapore, that will lead to a massive boost uh, into the stock exchange. Uh, it really depends because a number of uh, listed companies here 
primarily have most of their uh, revenue and their operations in uh, external economies. Purely, there's nothing wrong about there's nothing wrong about that in relation to Singapore. It's just a matter of the fact that Singapore's economy as a whole is just relatively small. And hence, if you really do want the growth, if you really do want, uh, you know, to, to enhance or larger increase your user base, you have to start looking outside. And, you know, we've obviously seen the numbers in India, Indonesia, uh, they're not looking that pretty right now. So, uh, you know, overall, is the index decently valued? Yes. And, uh, you know, hopefully it'll start recovering closer to uh, where it started out the year. Ah, where did the time go? I only have a couple of minutes left with you, Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Let's go to Yoma Strategic Holdings. They propose to increase their existing shareholder uh, base and take in controlling interest in mobile payments firms Digital Money Myanmar through a $76.5 million US dollar deal. Uh, what does this mean for, for the, their portfolio and what can investors take from this? I've actually been following this company for a really long time. And this is a good example of, you know, what we were just talking about. Singapore listed company, but it's a Myanmar conglomerate, right? Uh, so it, it, the, it, the share price of this will purely be dependent on how uh, that foreign government's economy does. Mm. Anyway, coming to this company, uh, you know, they have spread its uh, influence or the verticals across every aspect of that economy from being one of the largest F&B companies over there uh, motor vehicle leasing property, and now is obviously the big uh, fintech boom of uh, wave money. Uh, you know, started out by the father uh, a, w- a way back. Uh, now the son, who was an ex-investment banker from Goldman, I believe, has taken it over. Uh, his grand vision is to bring this to like at least a $3 billion business. As of last count, I think it was just under or like uh, about 20% less than a billion dollars. So if he can truly uh, map out his vision and actually execute on that, there's obviously a lot of potential for investors. And it seems like he's going about doing it as the next generation traditionally would, going into the more newer industries, going into wave money, which has done phenomenally well, uh, trying to bring uh, automation in payments uh, to the consumers of uh, Myanmar. Uh, great growth story. Uh, they've done a phenomenal job of raising capital also, which was required because their property business, their F&B business, obviously took a massive hit in the past about a year, uh, give or take uh, six months on the back of COVID. They've done a phenomenal job of raising capital. Uh, Ayala Corporation, which is a Philippine conglomerate, they took a 20% stake in this business at uh, close to 45 cents, I think. Uh, and financial, uh, obviously the 80 or $100 billion dollar uh, tech behemoth out of China uh, has also invested into wave money. So they've managed to get they managed to get uh, away from capital constraints by partnering up with these really large players. I think a lot will eventually, obviously, sadly, depend on how COVID eventually uh, affects the economy and all of its underlying businesses. But overall, it has a great uh, tailwind to it, right? Like a great growth story from Myanmar and mm. as a whole. Mm-hmm. And uh, the stock's interestingly priced, I would say. Okay, we must talk about Maple Tree Industrial Trust because its private placement equity fundraising was 8.2 times covered at the top end of its issue price range of $2.80. Everybody I speak with, uh, when asked about opportunities, say they're looking at 5G and they're looking at data center. We know Maple Tree Industrial Trust bought a 60% stake in 14 data centers in the U.S. for 200 
110 million US dollars. And we know that Mapletree Industrial Trust has made an application for the listing of new units on the main board of the SGX. What do these recent moves do for Mapletree Industrial Trust portfolio? Kudos to them to be able to raise capital right now. They, they didn't uh, try and pull the trigger a month ago, you know, when the mm-hmm. share price was a lot lower. Uh, are they doing the right things? Absolutely. Of their portfolio right now, in the high-tech building segment, it's down to about 60%. Uh, of their entire portfolio, data centers is now up to like 40% of their portfolio. So they're definitely going down the right path of, uh, you know, everyone knows 5G is going to be a huge thing. Mm. The amount of data that 5G consumes is like 4X or 5X out of 4G. Uh, so in the long run, they obviously have this massive uh, vision and tailwind behind them to try to do the right thing. And I think we, dare I say, we might see a lot more real estate investment trusts take advantage of these markets right now. Uh, the fact that the share prices have rallied substantially from the lows, uh, they might have been a little bit overextended potentially. Uh, try and raise a lot more, try and raise as much capital as possible and try and start going down the path of what uh, will be required of real estate in the next 10, 20, 30 years, right? Like, will we ever go back to the time of, you know, you have an office space of like 4,000 people or even if your headcount is 4,000, I think an office space of about 1,000 people is enough and uh, you know the rest, uh, the three fourth, the rest of the three fourth of them, they sit and work from home. So I think there'll be a lot more interest, like uh, malls, right? Like, uh, is it actually going to be frequented that often? Even before COVID, this was a problem. This is not a COVID-centric issue. Uh, Carl Icahn has taken massive short positions in the commercial uh, mortgage real estate because he just doesn't envision uh, these to be uh, survivable companies. Uh, post-COVID, like the amount of debt that they have versus the amount of revenue they'll be able to generate from uh, your shops and other retail outlets. So I think it's going to be a, I think there'll be a lot more bifurcation of who are the winners versus the losers. And I think investors can't just take a blind eye to, oh, this is a company that you see an 8% headline dividend yield. It's a real estate investment trust listed in Singapore. Mm. Life will be good. Mm. I think there has to be a lot more bottom-up picking to see which of the managers of these real estate investment trusts get the vision that things are going to be looking very different in the next 10 to 20 years in the real estate space. And how do they you know, direct their company to start focusing in those growth areas rather than the more traditional let me just set up an office building and I know that there will be loads of people who come to uh, rent space from me. Got it. Thank you for helping us think through markets like a pro, Arun. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Michelle. <laughs> Arun Pai is Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, wrapping up Money and Me this morning. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.